So I just came back from Malaysia, which is a privilege of feeling too hot. Difficult to imagine, you know, 24 hours from feeling too hot to feeling too cold. (laughs) You know, walking around in Malaysia, it's like your body's all slippery because it's just continually oozing sweat and everything's kind of, feels like you're moving around in a wetsuit all the time. And you, then uh, you're always looking to ways to cool down. You kind of take a take a shower and then just uh, bathe, and then don't bother to towel yourself. So you just put your clothes on with your body still wet, so it gives you about ten minutes or so before it all dries out again. You know, or you lie down at night and put a wet wet your robes and put your robes on over your body wet. So that you get some sleep. Yeah. Of course, nowadays you get air places where you've got air conditioning, and you just kind of get under the aircon. This is extraordinary. You come from that to you know landing in Heathrow and walk out, and it feels like somebody's scrubbing your face with ice. Your skin is kind of getting nibbled. <laughs> yeah. By freezing cold, where is it all right? Where is exactly right? We're not too cold, too hot, just right. Which country has the right weather? So it's just the way in which we can see there's um, the suffering or the discomfort seems to be something that we're just always with in some way or another physical, you sit still for a while your body hurts you, know, you move around too much you want to sit down sit down too much, you want to stand up stand up, you want to lie down <laughs> lie down, you get stiff you want to stand up, move around again <laughs> then you're thirsty so you drink lots of things then you've got to go and urinate, too much to drink, hungry, just never never seems to really settle, does it? The what called the sabhava dukkha, the just the plain old unsatisfactoriness of this physical existence, you know, and realizing actually, you know, even all this, this is still amazing because if you weren't on the planet Earth at all, you wouldn't have a chance of surviving. And, uh, you know, we can feel quite wretched or uncomfortable in the cold, huddling around and, oh, when's this going to end? And not recognising, you know, at the moment nobody's bothering me, nobody's beating me up, I haven't got some dreadful, nasty disease gnawing away at me, not being terrorised, you know, so it's very easy to to notice this uh, suffering and not notice the not suffering, not feel the credible blessings. Yeah. Our mind always tends to snag on the on the suffering or the dis- unsatisfactoriness, rather than having a 
thorn in your finger, the only part of your body you notice is your finger. The rest of your body you don't even notice. It's not there. <laughs> Just this thing in my finger. Yeah. Oh, like that, isn't it? And around that, the nagging bit, which is what you can do just when you, in meditation, just feeling physical discomfort. And the way the mind's trying to deal with it, change it, tweak it, resist it, you know, tough it out, uh, manipulate it, do something to it. You know, the mind restlessly trying to shift it around. Yeah. And then something in you gets the point of realizing the bit of suffering you can do something about is this restless resistance and pushing and irritation and just oh relax. Just let it be. Just go to that in the mind which doesn't make anything out of it doesn't try to understand it or cope with it, but just lets it go right through. I like to do that, you know. This is a place where I find something in me empties out, the nervous tension, trying to make it work, which is much more generally on the kind of psychological or the social plain organizing things to make it right, make it work, make it okay. Make it so that things are okay and sorted out and people are happy and comfortable and so forth. And so you just go, oh, just let it be the way it is. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> you know, just to find that place when you're your nervous system isn't tensed up, isn't kind of feeling besieged by life or trying to carry it or the heaviness, the burden of it all. When I was in Thailand, of course, I don't speak. Well, a very smattering of Thai, so... But the nice thing I found is practicing with that, whereas you go to a place where... And, you know, you go to listen to Dhamma talks. So we had this big um, um, gathering at Wat Pa Pong, and there's hundreds of thousands of people turning up, listen to Dhamma talks. And we listen to a Dhamma talk, you just sit still, and you sit on this kind of piece of cloth on, a, on the stone. You sit there, and the talk goes on for, you know, 45 minutes, an hour or so. Understand a word of it, but actually just going there and feeling this whole thing—the music of people's voices, the sounds of it, flow of it, physical feelings of it—you know, the body cramping up, just, just resting on that, just letting the mind rest on this kind of the pressure of that, the, the just re- resting on it, and then something starts to give up. Relax. I like to do that. Just the sense of the stillness and the steadiness of resting on the sabhava, you know, the, the elementary discomforts that we, rather than trying to continually wriggle around, trying to make it okay. And so that some, the mind then gets bigger. 
than its uh, its coping, bigger than its uh, ideas, bigger than its senses of right and wrong, is bigger than its senses of convenient and inconvenient, bigger than the sense of why am I doing this and what's the point, you know. And particularly in a, uh, you know, in a foreign country, in a foreign <coughs> culture, you can come up against these kind of little verbal resistances, like, why are we doing this? I don't understand why they bother to do this. Why do we have to do it this way? You know, when you go out on the arms around in Thailand, you're at, at, uh, in the Ubon province, you wear all your robes. So it's quite hot, because you have to put this whole lot on. Why? And walking barefoot, stony ground, why? Why are we doing this? Wouldn't it be easier to do it another way? When you ask somebody why and they go, oh, it's too much thinking. <laughs> Problem. <laughs> why isn't a very useful word in, in that culture. <laughs> just Just do it and then you know, so you come against these, oh, we're going to see, go and see Ajahn so-and-so. You think, well, why? Well, he just go and pay respects. Why would we pay respects to him? I like him fine where he is. You know, what's he going to do? We go over there, all the way over to this other monastery, and we sit there, can't understand a word he's saying, bow three times, sit there and listen. You know, pleasant enough in a way. Always going on, then... And eventually you get up and leave. What do we do that for? Why do we have to do these? Oh, it's because that's the thing we do. And something you start to, you know, feel these these kind of mental programs that are trying to organise and make it sensible, make it work and adjust it, and kind of give up. Yeah. And you do that quite a lot because uh, Often things are not that well organised. It's organised one way in the morning, by the time the afternoon comes around, it's all changed. And you go, but why? Why do we have to? What, what can we do this better way, this way? It's just, you know, feel the mind kind of wrestling with it, just give up. And, uh, but not giving, and actually feeling when you do that, not with just some sort of sullen attitude, but just actually feeling the nervous system release. And the mind suddenly feeling a lot bigger, feeling happier and, and wider and more spacious and more grounded. Because what, what these exercises do is not just an exercise in passive submission or obedience, but actually an exercise in... <coughs> coming out of one aspect of mind into something rather larger. Yeah. And uh, it's worth doing. It's, it is a sacrifice in some ways because, uh, you know, we can, it's a sacrifice of individuality, of our personal choices, that's big sacrifice. Yeah. But there is a, 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 a kind of a, a blessing or a benefit to it. You, know, you, you enter into something bigger and wider in yourself. When you recognize really what the criteria of the Dhamma practice, and particularly in the holy life, if 
you make that commitment to it, is this is about getting beyond birth and death. This isn't just about a bit of stress reduction or having a happy, balanced life. This is about getting beyond birth and death. This is no small matter, really. And you recognize that uh, birth and death are just plain unfair. And uh, why me? And I don't want to be, I don't want to die. And uh, why should my friends die? Why should he die at the age of 22? Why did that lovely little child die at the age of nine? You realize, you know, and then sometimes death is very difficult. It doesn't just just go to sleep one night and pass away as peacefully. Sometimes you're just miserable, racked with pain, going on for years. De- de- you know, un- undignified process of being tubes and pipes stuck into you, wheeled off into hospital, and uh, think people doing things to your body, un- losing your faculties. You know. Ooh. This thing is really wrong. <laughs> and then we get all the, uh, even when we're alive, you know, you get the sense of the injustices and the criminal behavior and the terrible things human beings do to each other. Yeah, and this is. This kind of thing can drive people to suicide when they think of uh, you know, what's the meaning of life. Point of it. Trying to figure it. Make sense of it. But, uh, you know, in, in the Buddhist or perspective, Dhamma perspective, this life is like a passage, like a trial, like an ordeal. You know, testing you. If you If you pass the test, you go through, you know, you're finished with it, you go on. Otherwise you can have to do it again <laughs> till you get it right. <laughs> so, this, this, so, under, so it's a matter of patience and, uh, and, and determination and being prepared to just, you know, relax into the uncom- discomfort of it. There are various stories that, that the Buddha gave. One of these, the Tamiya Jataka, I don't know if you've ever read that one, which is these fables that were made up for uh, about the Buddha's previous lives. And this was when he'd been, <clears throat> he'd spent 80,000 eons in hell for being a king, picking a Benares, because if you're a king, you go around slaughtering people, uh, you know, just to be a king means you're going to have to kill people, have armies, uh, be rapacious, defend yourself, you know, poison your enemies, uh, chop people's heads off, execute criminals. <laughs> so as a result of that, you end up in hell. This is just the kind of fable story. And if you just come out of that, after 80,000 eons in hell, he'd come out, oh God. Whoa, you know, that was, that was a trip. Just got born again. You know, finally came out back to a human birth. And I wonder where I am now. And he opened his eyes and there's this face looking down at him. 
bearded bearded man looking down on him with a crown on or something. That's my dad. He's a king. Uh oh, that means I'm heir to the throne. This is just a fable, isn't it? So that whatever I do, I can't. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go through that again. I can still smell the flames of hell. So what I'll do is I'll just pretend to be completely immobile, useless, so they'll never make me king. So he made this resolution to not move, not speak, not cry. Any reason whatsoever, just to be completely passive and mute, not move his limbs. So his mother sort of picked him up, dandled him around. He's a quiet little kid, isn't he? doesn't seem to cry (laughs) you know it's quite nice at first but he doesn't seem to move either doesn't seem to want any milk you know and he wasn't going to make any crying or anything at all so at first I think it was quite pleasant for the parents they felt funny because he didn't didn't seem to do anything and as he grew older you know one one or two years old he still made no sound they started to kind of poke him a bit yeah, and they put ants in it, covered him with honey, and put ants in his bed. He's laying there being bitten by ants. Oh, I still do this. It'll pass. Rather than another 80,000 eons in hell. Yeah. And they they put uh, snakes under his bed. They jump up, have people jump up in the middle of the night and blow trumpets at him. And he just lie there. <laughs> Whatever, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not going to... Do anything to starve him, he wouldn't cry out for food. Then he got to uh, puberty, they'd have, uh, you know, uh, nice girls running around him, he wasn't going to stir. You know, so they did all these things for 16 years, day after day after day. Uh, they eventually thought, oh, this, this kid is useless. And so, uh, so the father said, oh, just take him out and get rid of him, you know. So they took him out the city and uh, in the back of a cart, just chuck him in the back of a cart, dragged, took him out of the city, gave this uh, charioteer, gave him a shovel, just smash his head in and bury, dig a hole and bury him, useless kid. And he got out of the city and he realised he was out. Oh, free. <laughs> and then he got up, you know, all his strength came back to him and he picked the chariot up with one hand, you know, and the charioteer fell to his feet and he went forth as a hermit. That's kind of part of the story. But it's just that that I like to re- recollect that jataka because sometimes it does feel like you're being bitten by ants and stung by wasps and, uh, you know, crushed by terrible things. Often in, uh, you know, just coming out of this um, time in Thailand and round the way Asia where there's a big controversy over over Ajahn Brahmawangso and bhikkhuni ordination, you know. So whatever your views for or against that are, and there are views one can sympathize with on both sides, just recognize a huge amount of um, views and, and getting a little bit uh, polemical and sometimes downright... Um, you know, rude and insinuating and calling each other names. So there's kind of thing going on and then 
you know, you're sort of labelled as one of them, and people are accusing you of this, that, and the other. You think, God, you know, you just want to live a peaceful life, and may all beings be well, and <laughs> do all you can. <laughs> it's like being followed around by a plague of flies. Every time you sit down, these things crawl over you. People are having a go at you, and things like that. You know, just oh, just stay. Just rest in it, you know, stop trying to resist it, run away from it, get over it, explain it, just uh, just don't um, don't get riled up about it all. Don't add more fuel to it. That's this is these uh, you know, we can realise how human beings when they seek for the welfare of, of themselves and others, we will often do that through our ideas what's right or true or good or valuable and these are this is one of our gifts we can we have this possibility to imagine the good the true the better the just the fair that which is more useful for each other and uh, but if you notice um, often although we all have these notions often what how people translate what's good or right or true or proper varies from culture to culture I don't think anyone's ever created a war on behalf of evil. So we're the evil ones. We're always on the on behalf of the the good or the right or God or you know <laughs> the true cause or something other or purity or justice or you know, something like that. Nobody ever does it. Just say we're mean and spiteful. We just like killing people. <laughs> There's always some kind of feasible reason for it. So. So we just notice that these uh, these laudable values and ideas can uh, do do um, not everybody's clued up as to a common standard of what that is really how that translates into into the here and now. Yeah. So though this is this is great stuff, you know, you also have to recognise that that uh, there's a larger aspect of mind and the. the the ideas we have and the values we have don't won't take us past, um, you know, the, the sabhava dukkha. They may they may help to adjust it. So this is a bit more easy, this is more comfortable, and then we'll have another level of it. And the degree to which you want to shift conditions around to make things a bit more comfortable this way, a bit more comfortable that way, that's fine, you know. But sooner or later, you, you've got to find a place where it's comfortable enough. To, to feel confident to deal with the discomfort that's still there, you know, ideologically, socially, environmentally, politically, physically, whatever it is. You know, you've got to kind of break through that that barrier of, of I don't, you know, where the mind kind of resists, you know. And... Uh, so, and then you see that you have to really look deeper into the mind. And so we recognize that most of our, our thinking mind is generally, it's quite obvious that all our thoughts are emotionally nuanced. You know, we get excited, we feel disappointed, we feel, you know, happy, and we feel convinced, and we feel hurt, and those affect the thoughts we have. And often people can recognize this, the emotional aspect of mind and realize, yeah, we should 
we would like the emotional aspects of mind to be loving, compassionate, warm, spacious, and so forth. You know, and um, you know why aren't why aren't you like that? Why aren't you loving and spacious and warm and compassionate? Um, so why aren't we all emo- We would like to be that way. Why don't we do it? You know, we, these are not difficult concepts. Why, why, why don't we do that? Why don't we? Why don't we just manifest goodwill and tolerance and relaxation, ease and compassion and kindness? Why do? Why do we ever lose that? You know, everybody surely thinks this is a good idea. Let's do it from now on. Hmm? But it doesn't work like that because something this all gets challenged, isn't it? Either we get challenged by um, physical circumstances, other people's behaviour, people's opinions, and we feel very rocked and unsteady and confused by that and alone and suddenly isolated and, hey, you know, I thought we are on the... This doesn't fit the way I see it. It's something that rocks us around. We Then we want to kind of come back to someone we feel steady and stable and secure and on the right path and this is the right way. We lose our sense of security. We lose our sense of stability. An okayness. And then we get a bit rattled. So then when we get rattled, we lose that emotional warmth and ease and relaxation. So another aspect of mind is that which just makes us feel stable and present. And our emotional body kind of rests, our emotions rest inside that. When I feel stable, present, okay, I feel pretty okay, I feel happy. I could notice that even with physical discomfort, if I just can find a place where I just, something in me can just feel stable and present and with that, Strangely enough, I feel really okay with that. You know, something we can open up and just kind of accept that and lose the resistance to it. And then there's there's a sense of stability. And uh, so we have these three aspects of the mind: the thinking mind, call it your head, emotional mind, heart, and the sense of presence which is more the embodied sense it's not the physical body but it's very much related to the just the the nervous energies that tell us we're here here we are we're grounded you know? and this is not an emotional uh, quality although we might have emotional feelings about that it's just a sense of presence and this bit of mind is the piece that probably is least recognized and it's the piece you mostly develop in meditation. You don't, it's not the only thing you develop in meditation, but it's one of the things that meditation does that other things don't do. You know, like discussions don't necessarily give us this sense of presence. Um, really, what mindfulness, why the Buddha taught mindfulness of the body was it's a very good way to establish that sense of just grounded, stable presence in which praise, blame, success, failure... They blow through, they don't rock you. This is like a tree, you're rooted in that. And you can feel these emotions, you can feel these thoughts, you may have, have these emotions and they don't seem to catch fire because there's something new, bigger, more grounded, more stable than that. And he said, this is, you know, 
when we're starting to find the way out of suffering. It kind of grounded, grounded presence. Yeah. And uh, to recognize that we, we can establish that grounded presence even in, in situations which are uncomfortable. Even if, you know, like when it's hot or you physical pain or, um, you know, people are arguing. Now, something in, in me, you know, I'm sure that probably we all have this, is when, you know, things are difficult or people are squabbling or whatever, we could go up into my head and think, well, I've sort it out. I can make it different, change it around. That's not a bad energy, but that, that you know, one would like to do that. But when it becomes the only thing you can do, or a compulsion that when you can't sort it out you feel frustrated and disappointed and locked, you know, then it's not taking you out of suffering. Yeah. So it's that kind of compulsion to fix things. Whereas uh, really for a uh, gone forth person, for a, a meditator, really practicing Dhamma, the first thing you do is you, you, you find you make yourself fully present with the, with the suffering, with the stress, with the state as it, as it is, so that you're really letting your resources build up. You're not thrown by things, you're not reacting to, to discomfort or to crisis or to conflicts. You're not just reacting to them, feeling rattled, so you're desperately holding on to a view in order to get secure, in order to say this is right and that's wrong. Because this is what tends to happen, isn't it? You know, what we can do with our thinking minds, we're emotionally charged. If we feel things are, are rocking, not the way that should be or could be, or I want them to be, or we've agreed upon them as, goes up into my head, and I have a view. That's not fair. This is right. That's wrong. This isn't dhamma. This isn't vinya. This is. This you know. You did this first. No, he said that first. No, he really meant that. No, she actually said that. And this kind of thing goes on. You feel this energy rush up. And you get quite heated up. And, you know, once you go up there, the, you know, the sky's the limit. Because you can, you know, kinds of views, opinions, ideas, thoughts. And you realize it's pretty, it's, it's, uh, pretty relative because when you try to tr- describe something through a thought you know you, you, know, you realise it can be very subjective I was noticing this thing you know the way that for example in this situation with Ajahn Brahwongso's monastery and all that, you know, it could be he's been excommunicated. That's kind of kind of heavy way of looking at it. Ostracized, that's even worse. Or you could say that kind of the other party would say, well, it's just been delisted, which is a kind of very neutral term. So, you know, <laughs> how does it feel? And we, because we will all have subjective views. There's no way in which one can have a 360 degree view you're bound to have a subjective view 
You know, so it's not that you shouldn't have a, a viewpoint or a way of assessing things, just to recognize this is the way I see it. Ah, and then how does that feel? And how, do I, how do I work with that? How do I practice with that? So, yeah, we can feel have our, our views and opinions about things. It's, that's okay, but it's the adherence to them. It's the way in which one can only find that's the only resource we have. You wave an opinion at something. That becomes the only response we can make, which can happen, isn't it? Who's got the best, brightest, clearly authenticated, backed up by PhD thesis? That's the big view that's going to trump everybody else's view. Let's go scrambling round for the most convincing set of arguments. Uh, fight it out. That's, that's, you realize some of the most uh, kind of aggressive conduct occurs in debating societies. Or if you listen to the Houses of Parliament, it's quite shocking. These are the leaders of our country, you know, hammering away at each other. The right honourable member for Wolverhampton is a complete scoundrel who doesn't know what he's talking about. It's brain dead nitwit, you know. <laughs> Does he realise? Does the right honourable member for Leicester East realise what a what a useless basket case he is and how he's a disgrace to this country? <laughs> they always call each other right honourable and then <laughs> So this goes on, you know, and you, if you listen to this, it's, it's quite carnivorous. <laughs> and they're just kind of thrashing each other with, with views. And so, you know, it sounds like it's all kind of, uh, you know, reason. You realize that the emotional energy behind it is, is aggression and not, not seeking, uh, uh, you know, release in any way, but just seeking who's going to dominate who. This kind of rather strong trait in human human nature, different ways in which we can dominate each other, dominate, get you know, prove I'm better, prove I'm right. You realise in one way everybody's right. That's part of the problem. We're all right in our own subjective sense. There's a rightness about it. But in order to make it okay, we have to get beyond being right, don't we? To just being, so we can we be more compassionate. Let's call out those emotional energies that rush up into our heads. Call out that picking up, the Buddha called it the verbal daggers, the rods of views. Particularly, he said, uh, summoners are more prone to this because they don't have other things to fight over. So now dominating aggressive energies tend to, we feel threatened or rattled or upset, we rush to views. Mm. And then how do you find yourself, how can you experience compassion or release or, you know, okayness? Well, you know, although these are lovely qualities, you realize it does rest upon that sense of something in yourself feeling you've got the ground to feel compassionate because you're not being kicked around. 
something in you. You're not threatened, you're not kind of bunched up, defensive. You found a place where you can actually be a bit grander. And this is what presence does for us. It, it means even while we're in this conflicted state or, you know, you feel, well, okay, here I am, breathing in, breathing out, may all beings be well. So there it goes. Another bit of this hot air running through. Oh, well, well, it's really how, how we all suffer. What, amount, what stress we create. People who have good intentions, you know, not of goodness, what suffering we create. Isn't that something a cause for compassion? Rather than he's right, she's wrong. <clears throat> you know, so, and then to, to but then my sense is the experiences we have to, you know, come, almost come down from our views, our heads, almost come down even from our hearts. We get very chafed and sore and uh, panging into, into, almost into your guts, into your, your bodied sense where, you know, you're just here and you're not, you don't have to understand and you don't have to be right, don't have to be wrong. You're beyond right, wrong, understanding, not understanding, feeling good, feeling bad. You know, it's beyond the feeling. It's just here we are. You know, and just sit in that and let the energy drain, drain, rest. And so you start to feel wider, more spacious, softer, more open. It just seems not something that's, I don't see this as a kind of personal quality. You know, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just, that's what tends to happen. You do it, that's what happens. You know, it's that ability or to recognize, can we make the descent? Can we make that descent? Because to make the descent is like a kind of, almost like a dying to the to the head, you know, to the, this is what we're going to do, this is the right, this is the wrong, just the dying to that. And when I've made that my place where I feel secure, I've got it sorted out and clear, I don't want to leave that place. Hmm. Or that place where I feel I'm warm with my friends, and people like me and I'm okay and I'm a good guy. <coughs> We get on, we're reasonable, we're making peace. I don't want to leave that place where I feel, you know, happy and warm and liked and, you know, but sometimes it's not like that, is it? As if you just kind of make that your refuge, feeling happy and warm and good company and nobody's giving you any flack. Well, that, that's pretty fragile. <laughs> you know, because that take, that doesn't happen all the time, then you then you think, oh, good, you feel shaken and rattled around because people are not nice and so forth. And I've done so much, and I've done so worked so hard. And why are you like this, that, and the other? Yeah, tell me about it. I've heard it. <laughs> I've heard it in my own mind plenty of times. This isn't going the right way. You can't rest in that on that basis you've got to go beneath that and it feels like a kind of dying on the emotional level dying to friends and warmth and fun and humour and laughter and 
and those lovely things that we really like just, just not that they're bad but just they're not big enough that's the problem and when the things run out when there's not fun and laughter and friends then you're stuck so you go beneath that and it feels like a kind of dying then you finally you know you, you come to the ground and then you're not dying there's no more you know you've got to the end of death the death feeling the fear of it the struggling against it the fear of being overwhelmed you got to the end of that of the experience this kind of what we sense in death of the struggle against being swept away overwhelmed by something bigger than me that I can't understand and I don't know where I'm going to go afterwards it might take me something horrible fearful that's what death is and we don't have to wait till our bodies die before we feel that but this is where you come into, want to come to the end of death and the Buddha said there is a place where you go to the end of aging sorrow and death I call it Nibbana the island you can't get beyond this this is when we can really descend rest you know? and the body helps to take us there it's not the body but it's an embodied sense that kind of takes us starts to drain those patterns of our psychology and emotions that we so identify with we so are them in fact what else could be we as identities we have those we are supposed to be that and yet we can be more than our identity we can yeah you can't fit the world into your identity you can't as any identity you can't embrace pain and death you know but you but when you you can find a you can get beyond that where you can do that that can be done where the, the suffering the resistance stops this is the point really that is generally not you know by and large is not understood or known or place that we go to sometimes people go to it in extremists don't they you know suddenly somebody's in a real the death throes struggling like crazy and then the last few months they finally oh you know and then stop suffering I think why don't you do that 50 years ago you know <laughs> yeah. hung on you've got three minutes of peace before you <laughs> kick the bucket <laughs> what was all that about you know thrashing around over this that and the other and you could have just dropped it you know and uh, it seems to me that you know that, that 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 is a that sense of dropping it coming to this place in ourselves is really a you know, uh, something to be reminded of. Not as the only thing we do in life, but an incredibly useful resource, refuge, where the suffering can empty out and we get regenerated. And as you cultivate this, this is my experience and recommendation, you're going to recognize for yourself. You do that, then some of these really, you know, neurotic patterns don't get, have to get reestablished. 
you know, the self-pity doesn't have to keep happening. The sense of indignation doesn't have to keep happening. The righteousness doesn't have to keep happening. You know, you can kind of come out of that very grounded state. Oh, why bother with that one, you know? And it's like it starts to, so that your, your active programs, your ways of manifesting the world, also get changed because you've got a chance to discharge the whole lot. And then what gets comes back again, comes back when you haven't got these sort of patterns of, of mental and psychological behaviour. They're really based upon, you know, trying to create a foundation in thought or in emotions. Where you're always going to feel a bit cheesed off sooner or later. <laughs> and then why me, you know? And if you get a lot of it, that, that why me gets pretty strong. When things are emotionally challenging, the why me gets very strong. I don't know, you know, it's, it's one of those, again, you know, why me is a, is a it's an, it's an, I'm sure it's an understandable enough, recognisable feeling, isn't it? But it's a, it's a totally pointless question. <laughs> if somebody said, well, because of this, would it make it any better? No, it wouldn't. It's just the cry of uh, confusion and loss and don't, can't, can't handle this, you know? Or why me? And then, or why, why, why is he like that? Another one, well, you know, I don't know. If I did know, would it make any difference? Not really. You know, he's a product of uh, psychopathological parenting with, uh, you know, damaged dependency relationships. Oh, that makes, oh, that solves it all out. Great, thanks a lot. I feel completely comfortable now. So why doesn't really work, but it's a sound to listen to when you hear it, and the frustration with yourself, with other people. Why doesn't he get the point? Why is she always like this? They don't get it. You know that frustration. What's that? What do you really? When you get frustrated, what do you expect? You know, what's the hidden expectation that's being thwarted? You expect, I expect, everyone to see things my way. What a complete act of lunacy that is. What arrogance. And we can only, we always come back to that if we haven't understood that, that my way is just a particular quirk, really. One particular formation in the universe. One particular set of emotional energies rushing through. So it's when we find that, yeah, you know, you don't have to have it. You don't have to be my way. I'll experience, maybe I'll experience some of the irritation and the confusion and discharge it. So that if there are things we can 
work on, you know. We're coming from a place of coolness and equanimity. Hmm. So we say there's something about something more ultimate, you might say, or far, like the real release, and then there's something that's very useful in, in moderating our human behavior, our societies, what we do, how we, you know, with an act of just for the welfare and uh, out of judge the ability we have and the wish we have to be loving. To me this is very important, it may sound a bit, you may kind of cringe a bit when I use a word like loving, but <laughs> however you want to put it, something in me likes to be generous, likes to feel I can make other people a little bit happy or do something well, that my life hasn't been a complete disaster and blot on the human society. There's been something beneficent brought forth in it. You know? And I just, I like that joy of, of uh, you know, doing something that makes people happy. It's a great privilege, isn't it? When you can do that. It's, it's, that's, the, that's the nicest thing in life. To me, you get a real good feeling out of that. I want to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, and that's not about really demanding that it work or it's better than anybody else's or right or fair or this or that or the other. It's got no agenda, it's just the free wish for the beautiful, for the fun of it, for the happiness of it, for the, for the warmth of it, to, to experience that, to have been in that place where you just feel the warm energy running through you and you know let let it let it be there let it let it move you know, you know. And so this is the this in a way is what it is to be an individual isn't it really to me it's not no such thing as individuals that don't count but the real blessing of being an individual is to feel this was my chance to do my little act of goodness, you know. Damn. That's what it was. I did one of those in my life. Great. Did one of those today. Great, good day. Fed a a pigeon. (laughs) (laughs) You know, whatever it was, watered the plants, fed a pigeon. Dragged an old lady across the road, or whatever you want to do, whether she wanted to go or not, you know. (laughs) (laughs) These things are just there, they're kind of, they're fun. One of the nice things, you know, one kind of gets, particularly in, in, um, in, Asian countries, that I've, Buddhist countries that I've been to, is just that people are not just doing good because they ought to, or should, or it's proper, or it's useful. They're doing it because it's fun. And they're really joyful and happy and giggle when they do good. <laughs> Get cheerful. I think that's because it's like it's honouring themselves. They're really, you know, sense of the real filling themselves up, the animodana, the mudita, the sense of the overflowing of the good. And, uh, you know, and often in people who perhaps are not that well off, and everyone has their own suffering and problems, 
we have these katinas here, almsgiving ceremonies, and just the immense kind of joyfulness of it all when you get three, four hundred people come come together just because they want to make an offering or be part of an offering thing. And, you know, it's like, is this the great, is this saving the panda? Is it helping the global warming? Is it stopping crime? You know, well, maybe it is in its own way and it's contributing to the to the joyfulness and uh, in 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 morality and in generosity and in uh, bringing feeling this energy run through you, you know, see, yeah, then you see that you want to take every opportunity to do that. Yeah, so in in uh, in often in life we can do that through acts of kindness, gifts, acts of kindness, sharing, you know. Sympathy, or just sometimes, just when I'm sitting somewhere, just like to, to bring someone in, into mind and recognize, you know, I might not see them again, or they might be in pain or suffering. Just feel some way in which I can feel a good thought, a good inclination towards them. This is a, this is an opportunity never to be missed, really. And certainly, I think as we meditate, practice, this is part of what one of the joyful things to do. Starting to get a bit grim and intense about your meditation practice, just start developing some metta and appreciation. You know, when you've got a lot of problems you've got to figure out and work out, maybe it's time to just say stop that. Just start simple, simple, joyful uh, kindness as, as, a, as a just dropping into that centre in yourself. And then when you really want to rest, you know, then go down into to this sense of just being here as a in the bodied sense, feeling the nervous energies moving around and opening up to that and relaxing the the agitation and all that. This is mindfulness of breathing can help you do that. You know, really dropping down into your lower abdomen and letting the belly soften and feeling yourself grounding yourself there. Let the breath energy move through the body. So it's almost like you're just, uh, you know, it's almost like you've, you've switched off your brain. You're just breath energy flowing in and out through the fingers, the arms, the chest, the face, just sensing it and resting in it. And so when we have this uh, retreat time, it's a time when, you know, the, all the accumulations of our lifetime or the 20 years or decade, the last month, today or whatever, you know, it's a chance where you spend, try to spend the two or three months having a good clean out so that our potential for joy, your system isn't clogged and stressed and tight, the potential for joy, for benevolence is enriched and enlarged, your potential for equanimity and being unflustered is enriched and enlarged, you know, and this is really an enormous blessing for the world, then we act as like a, a firewall that puts out the fires of vindictiveness and uh, pain in the world. Mm. So I'll offer this for your reflection tonight. <coughs>
So the uh, <coughs> routine for this evening uh, for, is we'll be practicing formal meditation till midnight. So uh, you're on retreat, try to use that resolution to sit, stand, walk, breathe, stop and get to the places in between the breaths. <laughs> you have to be panting when you're breathing, just kind of feel the empty spaces in between the breaths as you breathe in and breathe out and feel, feel what that feels like. If you're visiting, then uh, you obviously you have your, your own things to go to, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Sunday tomorrow, maybe a day you can make a night of it. <laughs> but why? <laughs> why not?